We have begun uh, Lent, and this past week was Ash Wednesday, which marks the beginning of the Lenten season. And as we observe Lent in our various ways uh, for these next 40 days or so, our sermons are speaking from the theme of showing up, meaning we are exploring what it means to show up to life, to show up in, in the just fine, as Mama Joyce says, to show up to the realities of our world, to bring our full, beautiful selves into relationship with others and bring the full weight of our beauty and who we are, the full weight of that to bear on the world around us. And Lynn is often understood as a time to remove things from your life, but we're offering, it's also a time to show up and be present to your world. The little bit of church that I participated in while I was growing up, it was mostly in Pentecostal and evangelical context here and there. I didn't do much church. It just wasn't part of, of my growing up. So I didn't observe Lent, didn't really even know what it was until I was part of this community. Uh, I'm a learner alongside all of you. And one of my first Ash Wednesdays corresponded with a trip to the dentist, my like biannual trip to the dentist, which is something I usually dread because I never know what surprises await me there, even though I do floss every night. Thank you very much. But on that Ash Wednesday at the dentist, they're scraping and they're grinding on my teeth. And I know you all hate to, if you don't hate to hear this, you're crazy. Uh, it served as a good reminder for my own mortality and shortcomings. And, and, and as I was trying to figure out what Lent was, that kind of felt appropriate. This kind of momentum, Marie, remember your own death. But as time goes on, I'm moving away from self-flagellation or dentist-induced flagellation for Lent. And I'm thinking more and more about the additive practices that can help me show up for others. Jana just read the first half of our of our text where, where God says, what is this, a, a fast for ants? And basically what's going on is the people are asking God, why, why is it that we keep reaching out to you with piety and prayers and fasting? And the response that we keep getting back from you, God, is new number, who dis? And so the prophet explains to them what true fasting is. Let me read that for you. Beginning in verse 6, picking up where Jana left off, the prophet writes, Is this not the kind of fasting that I have chosen, says God, to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked, to put clothes on them and not to turn away from your own fellow human, your neighbor, your own flesh and blood. And if you do that, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will guard you in all directions. Then you will call and I will answer the phone. You will cry for help and I will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and the malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and you satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. 
The Lord will guide you always, will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land, and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins. Listen to this infrastructure plan. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. We hear the voice of God in the reading of these beautiful words. Thanks be to God. Now, first, if you're looking for a Lenten practice, you know, for this season, something to add to your life, you might just consider memorizing this bit of the Bible. It is really fantastic right there. You can do it. It's 12 verses. You got 40 days. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. You got this. But if you need some help understanding just how fantastic this bit of the Bible is, uh, think about the context. Let me just explain the context for a minute. This part of the book of Isaiah was written to the residents of Jerusalem, that famous city, that age-old city, who were, they were returning from forced deportations. They were returning from this forced exile. They were returning from this forced government relocation program. And like us in many ways, this speaks to us today, they were at this key point in their history where they were trying to rebuild their society, their social, political, religious, and economic systems. 60 years prior to this, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he laid siege to and he conquered Jerusalem because the king of Jerusalem flip-flopped from being on team Babylon to being on team Egypt. These were the two superpowers of the day. And if, if you know your Hebrew Bible history, you know Jerusalem must have been in a tough spot if they went over to team Egypt, right? You know the story of slavery in Egypt, the book of Exodus, the plagues, all of that. And Jerusalem said, we want to be on that team. So the, Bab the Babylonians didn't like this. And in response, they, they came in and they completely destroyed Jerusalem, just to the ground. The city, the temple, the walls, everything. And those who survived went through a series of deportations over the next decade, just waves of the Babylonians coming back and taking away more people, taking away more people and scattering them all over. Uh, and so the, the Babylonians knew, if you can uproot a people, if you can keep a people from feeling settled and established, if you can keep them from building physical, spiritual, and cultural infrastructure, they are a lot easier to control. And I think about this a lot. When I hear people being told or when I hear them say that they have to be uprooted from their communities if they want to be successful in life, I think, oh my goodness, no, you're missing out on so much. So 60 years later, the Babylonians, then they were conquered by the Persians and the new administration told the Jews, you can go back to Jerusalem now. Uh, in reality, they probably thought this would promote empire stability. Uh, empire is going to empire. It's what it does. So some of the Jews went back to Jerusalem. Now, in my mind, here's where this gets really interesting. Can you imagine the social and the economic dynamics of all this? Maybe some of those who were allowed to stay behind, who didn't get forcibly removed from the land, maybe they, they came in and they filled that vacuum of power and commerce, and they found a way to flourish. 
while others suffered. Maybe some of them who stayed behind had stolen land and houses after the violent deportations, just like people did when Jews were taken away during the Holocaust. And just like Poland, to this day, continues to be the only EU country that has not passed a law to help Holocaust survivors reclaim the stolen property, the residents who stayed behind in Jerusalem may have been unwilling or unsure of how to equitably return stolen land and houses. I can pick on Poland. I can pick on Jerusalem of that day, but the United States, of course, we're just as bad or we're worse because we bear the same guilt this day. We've never really made amends or reparations for not one, but for two violent forced deportations and cultural genocides. How do we begin to make amends for this? It's amazing how this text will speak to us and to our culture even today, our situation today. Maybe some of those returning to Jerusalem, they were returning in utter poverty, having only the clothes on their backs, while others did really well in exile, and they acquired wealth or prestige in Babylon. You know the story probably of the four young Jewish men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and how they were chosen to be a part of the king's court. People like this probably didn't return empty-handed. In fact, they may have been sent back with the political and the financial blessing of the empire that was sending them back to Jerusalem. Imagine all that and imagine all the innumerable other social and economic dynamics that were present at these, as these exiles are coming back to rebuild their society. Imagine in the air the feelings of hope and grief and guilt, anger and excitement. Imagine the uncertainty. How long until the next empire comes along and destroys our infrastructure and dismantles our community? How long until that happens? What do we do with those who have suffered the most because of these empires? How do we live as a faithful community in a world where the powers that be, they don't want us forming a critical mass of showing up. They don't want us forming a body. They don't want us forming a community of empowerment, of life-giving power to one another. These are the questions that they were probably wrestling with. And to be honest, these are perennial questions. These are the questions that apply to us today as well. And it could be said that they were in the midst of repairing the soul of their society the soul of their society. We tend to think of soul in very individualistic terms, don't we? And, and, and we only think of individual souls and getting them saved, whatever that means. It usually means something about getting a person to say the right words, to believe the right things, and to behave, and then maybe one day they'll belong. But I like the definition of soul that the theologian Bruce Rogers Vaughn uses. I, I put it in your guide today. His definition of soul uh, is that soul is that fabric that embeds every one of us within all that is. Soul is our existence within the woven living web of all humanity in creation. This is soul. In other words, the state of one's soul has less to do with 
saying some words, and it has more to do with how well one is woven into a healthy, life-giving community with God and with their fellow humans and with the rest of creation. And I, I one of my New Year's goals this year is, is, is radical honesty, and so I've been trying to at least have one thing, one idea, one point in a sermon that can get me fired each week. Uh, and so this might be it right here, so pay attention. For me, the state of one's soul has less to do with keeping moral purity codes, like don't drink whiskey and don't say cuss words and don't live in committed mutual relationships with people of the same sex. And, and you better say you believe this doctrine about the Bible or the Trinity or hell or whatever. You know, I, I don't think that stuff matters. I don't care about your metaphysics, about what you believe about hell or about the Bible or about the Trinity. That stuff doesn't matter to me. The theologian Martin Luther said one of the definitions of sin was being in a state of being curved inward, which makes these forms of morality, in my mind, incredibly sinful because their focus is entirely on themselves. It's individually focused. It's curved inward morality. Hashtag irony. Which is why I find it helpful to think about the state of one's soul in more relational and communal terms. It has more to do with being a part of a community that promotes wholeness, that promotes physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, relational, financial health. It has more to do with access to resources like clean water, healthcare, food, electricity, education. In our text of Isaiah 58, God is confronting the people with this. You, you say you're doing all the right spiritual things like fasting and praying, but you completely miss the point. You are inwardly curved. You are oblivious to the burdens of those around you. If you notice, the text keeps using this one word, repeating it again and again, and it's the word yoke, Y-O-K-E, yoke. It's that, that farm tool that you would put around an ox so it can pull something heavy. And in the Bible, it is the universal symbol of oppression. And, 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 and it's intended to have this shock factor and effect to it. It should make us go, why is a human wearing something that belongs on a farm animal as if they are a tool to be used or an object to be owned? And to this point, God says, this is real praying and fasting and real religion. Untie the cords of the yoke that you have put on your fellow humans. Set the oppressed free. Don't just untie the yoke. He says, break the yoke. Break every chain of injustice and then satisfy the needs of the oppressed. And then look what happens if you do all that, that yoke removal. And I'm not making this up. I, I, didn't, I didn't choose this text at the last minute. Aurelian friend, no, I chose this text maybe a month ago to preach for today. But it says, if you will do that, then you will rebuild your society's infrastructure. Isn't that incredible? It says, you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will raise up your foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. In other words, you will make your city and your home habitable once again. Here they are, 
at the outset of rebuilding their society. And God says, if you really want to rebuild it, stop oppressing one another and you will flourish. If you really want to rebuild your society, start by making sure that no one is treated like an animal or a commodity or expendable. If you really want to rebuild your society and get God's blessing on it, then make sure that the most vulnerable are not exploited and forgotten and oppressed as you build your systems and your infrastructure. This text could have just as easily been written to us today. You know, you know what we've been through this past week here in Texas. And this is a great place as we're thinking about Lent this year. Over the past year, uh, including last week, there has been an incredible unmasking and unveiling of what our society is and our systems. And as Joyce said earlier, this is one of those things that you can't unsee. We have seen how so many in our society are wearing the yoke of debt and resource deprivation and financial insecurity and underemployment and incredibly expensive housing, healthcare, education, and childcare. We have seen the yoke of loneliness on one another. We have seen the yoke of despair. We have seen the yoke of stigmatization, of needing mental health support. These are all yokes around our necks. And we saw this week how our leaders yoked hundreds of thousands of people with no electricity in single digit temperatures because it was decided somewhere along the way that they weren't worth the investment to ensure access to water and to heat. And now we find ourselves collectively positioned to have a conversation about infrastructure as a society. And I ask, will we choose pious words and prayers or will we remove the once hidden but now obvious yoke of oppression from people's necks? Will we build systems that promote resilience and health for the most vulnerable in our society, AKA the not rich, the not mega corporations, the not downtown parking garages that don't need lights and electricity in the middle of the night? Who are we going to look after? Will we argue over ways to mitigate the yokes that are weighing down and exploiting people? Or will we find ways to completely remove them? God doesn't say mitigate the yokes on, on your fellow human. God says break the yokes that are on them. We love to mitigate exploitation and suffering rather than solve it. For example, rather than abolishing homelessness, we mitigate it with temporary shelters and due process in eviction court. Rather than abolishing war in which civilians, mostly women and children, disproportionately suffer, we just mitigate it with just war theory and detached drone strikes. Rather than abolishing extreme economic insecurity, we just mitigate it by saying, here, you can work three jobs in this gig economy. And guess what? Now it takes, statistics our studies have shown, it takes 53 weeks of full-time employment to pay for 52 weeks of living expenses. Does anybody else see a problem here? Yeah, there's only 52 weeks a year, but you have to work 53 weeks just to pay the minimum living expenses for 52 weeks. Rather than abolishing malnourishment in our society, we mitigate it by saying, 
hey, breastfeeding women, you can stay on WIC until your baby is one year old. Rather than abolishing debt slavery and breaking that yoke, we just, we mitigate it via student loans and payday loans and title loans and bankruptcy court. I could go on and on, but the point is that God challenges his people at the outset of rebuilding their society, find a way to break the yoke, abolish the yoke. Don't just mitigate them. God says, remove them. This is first principles thinking. And if, if we will do these things, we will actually show up and we will restore our physical and spiritual infrastructure. We will mend and strengthen the communal fabric in which we all exist. Wouldn't that be beautiful? Like many of you, I'm sure you're like, hey, Matthew, that's, yes, I'm passionate about that. I'm excited about that. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. I can't address life at that level. <laughs> I, I get overwhelmed as I think about mending our social fabric at such a grand level. I'm right there with you. I know a few people who get to do that kind of work. I, I think of George in this community who is helping to restructure healthcare in our entire society. Like, like I know a few people that get to work at that level, but most of us, the level that we get to really work at is the family, work, church, neighbor level. That's where we really get to do this work of mending the, the fabric of our society. This is where we get to really show up. This is where we can show up and not just mitigate the yokes that are on our neighbors, but we can work to break the yokes. What would it look like? So this is my Lenten challenge. What would it look like for you to spend Lent looking for opportunities to show up and mend the soulful fabric at those levels, at, at the family level, in your home, at the work level, in your church, at the neighbor level? I, I was fortunate to experience this last night. My neighbor across the street, uh, he, they just came back in from out of town and, and he texted me and said, we brought some groceries. We were driving in from a different state. So we brought some groceries. Can I bring you some bread? And he brought me over a loaf of bread. He, he is mending that fabric of soul that we exist in together. I know, I know we all want to implement grand solutions, but I think for most of us, the best we can do is show up and look for how those around us are bearing the yoke of suffering, bearing the yoke of anxiety, bearing the yoke of loneliness or hunger, and we can attend to that around us. I was very impressed. I was very impressed with how this community, the community of peace, showed up and tended to the, soul, the social fabric that is our community of peace this past week. I hope you were encouraged by that too. This was our time to shine, and I really thought we did. We, we listened deeply to one another's needs and concerns and fears and anxieties, and we found ways to take care of one another. We dropped off food and firewood and water. We took each other into our homes. Sometimes the most we could do was just provide emotional and spiritual support from afar. That was the most we could do, even in our own suffering and anxiety. But you know what? That was the bread of life that sustained 
one another that sustained this community. That was the fire of life that warmed our hearts and our homes. It, that was the coming together to cover one another's bare shoulders with the fabric of sacred community. We did that. We showed up. We took care of one another. We mended and tended to that social fabric of soul in which we all exist. This was, I would say, the kind of true fasting that our Bible tells us to practice. And I think we're getting pretty good at it. This was our time to shine, and I thought we did. Now, this isn't supposed to be entirely self-congratulating. There's a little bit of that there. Good job. You know, that's part of it. But I think we're ready to level up. Peace community, we're ready to level up. Don't get intimidated by that. I want you to take it as a challenge to find one more person in your life who is bearing the yoke of suffering. One person bearing the yoke of suffering. And find a way to weave them into the soulful fabric of life-giving community. And as you do this, as you step into this challenge during Lent, as you show up and just find one person bearing a yoke and weave them in, I offer you the blessing that our text that God offers through the prophet to the community as they are rebuilding a society. I offer you the same blessing. May your light rise in the darkness. May your night become like noon. May our God guide you always satisfy your needs, strengthen your body, and make you like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Amen.